Hi everyone and welcome back to my series on the story of Britain. This is episode 23, Civil War and Cromwell. Upon the death of Elizabeth I, the last of the Tudors, the Crown of England had passed to a, different, a distant relative from the Scottish Royal House of Stuart, James VI. He ascended the English throne as King James I in 1603. Whilst James had some very clear concepts of kingship, namely that he had a divine right to rule from given to him by God, he had to hold his tongue as he needed English Parliament's support both to raise taxes and to secure his position in the face of Catholic plots, most notably the Gunpowder Plot of 1605. His son and successor Charles I had no such inhibitions and his belief in his divine right to rule put him on a path that would lead to civil war, his own execution and England's experiment with republicanism under Oliver Cromwell. Charles succeeded to the thrones of England and Scotland, don't forget there were separate countries in those days, in 1625. Not only did his belief in his divine right to rule fly in the face of the powers that Parliament had wrested from successive kings ever since the Middle Ages, but Charles was increasingly at odds with the growing Puritan and Presbyterian religious movements in England and Scotland, respectively. These were, I guess you can say, the more extreme wings of the Protestant Reformation. Despite the Church of England being, well, nominally Protestant, it had never gone the full journey. To many Puritans, the Church of England, with its, its liturgies and its bishops and its robes, still felt a bit too Roman Catholic for them. So, we had this king who wanted to rule without Parliament, his divine right, in fact, he dismissed Parliament just four years into his reign and didn't call another one for 11 more years. And he was on a collision course with his Puritan subjects, many of whom were represented in Parliament. Things actually started to go wrong first in Scotland. In 1637, Charles tried to bring the Scottish Church, the Kirk, in line with the Church of England, with the, the same liturgy and a hierarchy headed up by bishops. Presbyterian Scots were incensed and they signed an oath or a covenant to oppose the king's reforms by all means necessary. Royal authority was evaporating in the face of these covenanters in Scotland and Charles decided to act. He would restore his authority and deliver these reforms by force if necessary. The Scots armed themselves and faced down the king. The problem for King Charles is that armies and wars cost money, and the easiest way to raise that money was through taxes. But he needed the English Parliament to agree to these taxes. And well, as you heard just now, Parliament hadn't sat for, for nearly a decade, thanks to Charles dismissing it. But Charles had no choice. In December 1639, after a 10-year absence, Parliament was finally called in London. Now, Charles wanted Parliament to approve taxes for an army to sort out those covenanters in Scotland. Parliament, on the other hand, had 10 years worth of grievances they wanted to sort out with the King, and they refused to vote for his taxes unless he met their demands. The covenanters in Scotland, under the command of the experienced uh, military leader Alexander Leslie, now took the initiative and invaded England, defeating the King's forces in battle and then marching on and capturing Newcastle-upon-Tyne. With this so-called Bishop's War going to hell in a handbasket, King Charles was forced to agree to Parliament's demands, one of which was passing a law stating that the King was forbidden 
from dissolving his parliaments. The king fumed at this attack on his divine right to rule, especially as the MPs continued to flex their muscles. And in January 1642, King Charles I entered the House of Commons at the head of armed troops to arrest uh, five of the leading dissident members of Parliament, only to find they'd been tipped off and had fled. Relationships with Parliament had now irrevocably broken down, and both sides prepared for war. Charles raised his standard at Nottingham Castle on the 22nd of August 1642, and nobles from across the country flocked to join him. The Civil War had started, and Britain would never be the same again. The conflict between King and Parliament is commonly known as the English Civil War, but actually, you know, it encompassed Scotland, Wales, and Ireland too, and really should be called by its lesser known name, the War of the Three Kingdoms. Drawing support from many nobles, King Charles's army contained far more men on horseback uh, than the, the parliamentarians did. And this gave them their nickname, based upon the French word for horsemen or knights, uh, chevaliers, it became cavaliers. Many of these mounted noblemen deliberately wore their hair long in contrast to the parliamentarians who had uh, rather crude haircuts, or as they were called, roundheads. The first battle took place in October 1642, just a few months after the raising the standard at Nottingham at Edge Hill. The battle in southeast, well, southeast of Stratford-upon-Avon in Warwickshire was inconclusive, but it taught the Roundheads that they needed a far better trained and organised army if they had any hope of winning this conflict with the King. And over the next two years, the Roundheads built a disciplined army to take on the Cavaliers. It was called the New Model Army, and was commanded by Thomas Fairfax. Part of the New Model Army was a disciplined troop of cavalry under the command of Fairfax's deputy, Oliver Cromwell. Finally, on the 14th of June 1645, the two sides met for the decisive battle of the war at Naseby in Northamptonshire. It was the turning point in the war where the Roundheads gained a decisive advantage over the Royalists that would lead to their ultimate victory. Okay, so here we are at the Battle of Naseby and we're standing right in the middle of the parliamentary line and across the field sort of above those yellow bits on the brow of the hill that's where king charles stood with his royalist army the royalist infantry uh, under his command we then had cavalry over in those woods there on his left flank and over on the right there where that farm is that was his right flank Cavalry again, commanded by Prince Rupert, his nephew, and probably one of the, the best commanders he had. And as I say, here we are in the parliamentary, the parliamentary infantry here. Across the road there was the parliamentary cavalry, commanded by Oliver Cromwell. And to the left was the other parliamentary cavalry. Cavalry, commanded by Cromwell's son-in-law Henry Ireton. So basically, you had infantry in the middle on both on both sides, and then you had cavalry on each flank. The battle started with Prince Rupert galloping at full pelt with his cavalry across the field and driving the uh, the left flank of the parliamentarians back. In fact, they uh, they broke, they fled, 
and rather than turning that to a tactical advantage what Prince Rupert did was they kept galloping they galloped all the way to Naseby village which is about two miles well over the top of this hill somewhere and uh, they found the parliamentary baggage train which they then proceeded to try and attack because obviously there's lots of uh, lots of cash and prizes there to be to be won by the troops and meanwhile the battle continued uh, nothing happening over on this side at the minute so the battle um, the king's men move forward off their truck crest of the hill towards the parliamentarians and the cavalry over there from the from the, uh, the wood rode in support it was at this minute that Cromwell moved forward and with his well-trained troops now from the the new model army they smashed into that royalist cavalry they drove them back and then he turned his cavalry onto the infantry who were advancing across this field. So suddenly the infantry were being fired upon by the parliamentarians standing where I am now under Sir Thomas Fairfax and they were being attacked on their side by mounted troops under Cromwell. At that stage, Henry Ireton, with what remained of the parliamentary army, uh, parliamentary cavalry that had been uh, left on that left flank there, came back into the battle and he now attacked the infantry from the left side. It was at this minute that the uh, the royalist infantry buckled and started to retreat and started actually to surrender. Charles had to flee the field back towards Leicester and this was the end of the most decisive battle in the English Civil War. Less than a quarter of the Cavalier army escaped the field at Naseby. They left behind 1,000 dead and 7,000 captured. And that was the end of his uh, the royalist fighting force in the Civil War. Within a year, Charles himself was captured and imprisoned in the rather plush surroundings of Hampton Court Palace to the west of London. With the King under lock and key, the debate in England now raged. What to do with the King and how England was to be governed in future. Parliament and many of the commanders of the New Model Army came from the, the, the landed gentry, many lesser gentry, uh, but they still had a vested interest in, in keeping as much of the old social order as possible. And they were termed grandees. They included uh, Cromwell and his son-in-law Henry Ireton and Thomas Fairfax. And they wanted some sort of accommodation with the king, a sort of a maybe some form of constitutional monarchy. However, there was another point of view. Because many in the new model army, especially in the rank and file troops, especially those from London area, wanted something altogether more radical. They called themselves the Levellers. Five of the most radical regiments in the New Model Army elected representatives, who they termed New Agents, to present their case for change to the grandees. And on the 28th of October, 1647, the two factions met at the parish church of St Mary the Virgin in Putney. Uh, now, now very much part of London, in those days Putney was a village about five miles west of the city of London on the River Thames. Cromwell himself attended amongst the grandees. The new agents, the levellers, presented a draft constitution which they called an agreement of the people. They argued that there should be no king and that the House of Commons should be the supreme lawmaking body in the land. They demanded parliamentary constituencies of equal size and most radical of all, universal manhood suffrage, not based on how much property you owned, but one man, one vote. In many respects, what we now term as modern democracy, but at the time, this was radical proposals. The Putney debates lasted until the 9th of November, and the grandees 
simply push, pushed, brushed the levellers' demands under the carpet. Two days after the Putney debates had finished, King Charles escaped from Hampton Court, but he was soon recaptured and he was held in captivity at Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight, slightly more secure. But meanwhile, the King had come to an agreement with the Scottish Covenanters that if they supported him to regain the throne, he would allow the Kirk and the Church of England to become Presbyterian. With this deal under their belt, the Scots now invaded England on behalf of Charles in what was uh, to be known as the Second Civil War. However, they were to be defeated by Cromwell at Preston in Lancashire. Parliament was still the one that Charles had called back in 1640. They had been sitting now for eight years, and history knows it as the Long Parliament. Many of its members were from the landed gentry, and whilst they were fully behind the idea of Parliament being sovereign against the King, they did want that sort of compromise with the King. The new model army under Cromwell, however, had swung against the King. His deal with the Scots and indeed his escape from Hampton Court proved that Charles could not be trusted. And moreover, by encouraging a Scottish invasion of England, King Charles had the blood of Englishmen on his hands. And the new model army's leadership decided the time for talking and compromise was over. In 1648, one of Cromwell's officers, uh, Colonel Thomas Pride, marched his troops into Parliament and carried out a purge of the members. Anyone with leanings towards the King were banned from attending any future parliamentary meetings. What was left, the Rump Parliament, would do the New Model Army's bidding. And on the 20th of January, 1649, Charles was put on trial for his life. Refusing to cooperate or recognise the validity of the court, Charles was found guilty of being a tyrant, a traitor and a public enemy. The 59 remaining members of the Rump Parliament, including, including Cromwell, signed his death warrant. Just a few days later, the 30th of January, 1649, King Charles walked under military guard from St. James's Palace to the Palace at Whitehall in London. And there he awaited his appointed hour in the company of his, his chaplain, the Bishop of London. Shortly after two o'clock in the afternoon on the 30th of January, 1649, King Charles I stepped out from the banqueting house in Whitehall onto a scaffold that had been draped in black cloth. Sand had been strewn on the black floor to soak up his blood. Two masked executioners waited for him. A large crowd numbering, well, over a thousand, had assembled to witness this moment in history. Never before or since has an English king been tried and executed for treason. Soldiers kept the crowd so far away they couldn't actually hear the king as he made a brief speech. If they had been closer on that freezing day, they would have heard him say, I go from a corruptible to an incorruptible crown, where no disturbance can be, no disturbance in the world. And with that, he took off his gown and his jewelled medal of the Order of the Garter and tucked his long hair into a white nightcap. That morning, he'd actually put on two vests uh, to prevent him shivering in the cold and uh, to prevent people mistakenly believing that he was scared. And then he had a final prayer with his chaplain and instructed the executioners to watch for his signal. Charles knelt down, leaned forward onto the block, extended his neck so that the executioner had a clear strike. And then he signalled by stretching out his hand. 
With one clean stroke, the executioner severed his head and lifted it up to the crowd. Witnesses reported that rather than cheering, that vast throng just let out a low groan. A week later, the monarchy was officially abolished by the Rump Parliament, and a Commonwealth Republic was set up, unofficially and then officially led by Oliver Cromwell. The Commonwealth ushered in a period of Puritan rule in England, you know, where theatres were closed, where there was strict observance of the Sabbath Sunday, and where religious festivals were banned. Interestingly, actually, the only festival not banned was the celebration of Bonfire Night on the 5th of November. Yet Bonfire Night celebrates the successful thwarting of Guy Fawkes and his fellow Catholic conspirators to blow up uh, Charles's father, King James I, back in 1605. Naturally, Cromwell didn't want to celebrate the saving of these executed king's father. After all, it wouldn't take a genius to spot the irony of that. The key for Cromwell was it was a celebration of England being saved from Catholics, for whom he had an absolute loathing. And this loathing drove his actions in Ireland. During the Civil War, the Irish Catholics had sided with the King, and it had pitted uh, the Catholic and Protestant populations on that island at each other's throats. Unbowed by 1649, Cromwell feared that they could provide a launching pad for a royalist revival under Charles's son, who'd already been proclaimed King Charles II by his supporters. Cromwell crossed to Ireland and wreaked havoc. Catholic or royalist garrisons were crushed and no quarter was given, and notably in the uh, storming of the towns of Wexford and Drogheda, where thousands were killed. But it wasn't just the soldiers who received his wrath. He wreaked a bloody terror on the civilian population too. Over 50,000 Catholic Irish were transported in almost slave-like conditions to work on the plantations in Bermuda and Barbados. Estimates put the death total in Ireland at anywhere between 200,000 and 600,000 from a population of approximately 2 million. Whilst Cromwell was engaged in Ireland, young Charles II had landed in Scotland and convinced the Scots to help him invade England and reclaim the throne. Cromwell now left Ireland to the mercies of his son-in-law, Henry Ireton, and raced back to England. On the 3rd of September, 1651, he crushed Charles II and his Scottish army at the Battle of Worcester. The 21-year-old Charles fled the battlefield with the Roundheads in hot pursuit. At one stage, he had to hide in an oak tree when the Roundheads started to search the grounds of Boscobel House in Staffordshire, where he was staying. In fact, this is the very oak tree. It doesn't look very, uh, doesn't look large, very large now, but it is over 300 years old. Eventually, he was to escape to, to France. And that escape and that hiding in the oak tree is commemorated in the pub name, the Royal Oak. It's the second most popular pub name in England. Uh, the most popular one is actually the Red Lion. Two years later, in 1653, Cromwell was given the title of Lord Protector. Whilst offered the title of King, he refused, but the powers given to the Lord Protector were regal in all but name. And for the next five years, Oliver Cromwell ruled effectively as a military dictator. He died in September 1658 and was initially buried in Westminster Abbey. He was succeeded to the title of Lord Protector by his son, Richard Cromwell. But the son was not the father. Tumbledown Dick, as he was nicknamed, was forced to stand down and recall Parliament once more. And within two years, 
Charles II had been invited to retake the throne peacefully. Britain's 12-year experiment with being a republic was over, and the period known as the Restoration was about to begin.